Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former Chief Human Resource Officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise. They can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com right now to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches, and if you use code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Hani Saeed. Hani was born in Saudi Arabia to parents of South Asian origin. He migrated as a child with his family to the U.S. at the age of two. Growing up in Southern California, he became an avid athlete and sports fan, engaging in baseball, football, and basketball from young. He studied history at UC Berkeley and began a career in investment banking and then joined a few startups. He then earned his MBA from a joint UC Berkeley Haas Business School and Columbia University Business School program, where he spent a year at each. He then made his way to Dubai in a principal investing role. His focus was on social infrastructure sectors with a particular emphasis on education. He recently launched Athleta Ed, a company focused on using sports examples to drive learning outcomes for traditional university accredited courses and industry-validated certificate classes. Hani, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It's great. I appreciate it. Um, we've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Um, when we have guests on, we like to go back um, in, in, in the, the beginnings, uh, so to speak. And uh, you and I have had a few conversations that uh, your family origin is from yep. India, yep. in particular Uttar Pradesh around India yeah, uh, and, and, and Pakistan. So dad's And Pakistan as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. Great. Now, were you born there? Were you born? No, in the no. States? I was actually. I would say he was born in Saudi Arabia. So um, that's why I have yeah. the the very typical Arab name. So Hani is not like a, a generic Muslim name. It's a very that's typical right. Egyptian Palestinian name. So it's not like Muhammad or Tariq or names like that that like you exactly. know most Muslim cultures have. Um, so Indian who looks more Indian Pakistani looks more Arab than I do Indian yeah. or Pakistani, and then born in Saudi. Um, so <laughs> what brought your, what brought your family to, uh, to Saudi Arabia? Well, were you in Riyadh or? Yeah, no, Jeddah. Um, so, so my dad was educated here in the U S and then, um, they actually went to, uh, to Hajj. Um, okay. and then while he was there, um, you know, American airlines was running Saudi airlines at that time. And, nice. and so, you know, as a Pakistani, um, you would go back to like PIA or a place like, you know, PIA was quite kind of quite advanced for like an international carrier at that time. Um, right. And so he was working there, had a great job. And, and the guy who was running Saudia um, was a guy from the Midwest. And my dad went to school in North Dakota. So he said, you gotta, you know, you just stay here. Don't, don't leave. Wow. 
And so there's a lot of uh, South Asians who are in the Gulf countries, you know, oh, sure. UAE, Bahrain, Saudi. Um, and so we, we came to the U.S. because my older sister, um, you know, we weren't American at that time. And so my dad was very well placed, um, but my sister's only choices, my parents' only choices for my older sister was to send her back to Pakistan or India or to like boarding school in Switzerland. They would have happily paid right. for her to do that. And, um, you know, my dad was, you know, I, I have a lot of similar characteristics that my dad had. And, and he said, that's like, that's messed up. I'm not going to be okay with that. <laughs> and so he, you know, like he, we couldn't pay. And then, you know, you it, it, you, it makes sense. You know, if you were talking about the American embassy school or the British embassy school, we weren't American yeah. or British. So it's not a matter of we couldn't pay, but it just didn't sit with well with him that like some... Exactly. low-ranking employee at uh, um, Saudi could get his kid for free in one of those schools and he didn't have the right to pay for it um, yeah. and, he, and yeah. so so he's a young man he came to the U.S. and I was uh, born you know I was I came in when I was two so it was the only country I've ever okay. really known Very, yeah. yeah yeah and uh, what's the age gap between you and your sister uh, five years and so my younger okay. sister was born here and um, you know we just okay. lived the very typical you know South Asian you know immigrant life uh i know people, it well you know a lot of you know a lot of us came in the 70s and you know For late sure. 70s early 80s over that you know 10 year period of time you know i think um uh hassan minhaj uh, describes that experience pretty well um <laughs> yes. uh, and it's and so if you just watch a bit of his show you can kind of pretty much understand yeah, you know, yeah. my life well, Ru russell peters does a good job yeah. and the yeah, canadian all, counterpart we all have <laughs> Very similar experiences, right? Yes, what what age do you come? Um, you know, so we were unique in that my family uh, was the only family that came. So um, I was, for, you know, we would go back a lot to stay connected with family. We had not, not, no, no family there. So. No, that's important. Now, when you came to the U.S., where did you settle? Uh, Orange County, California. Okay. So just uh, nice. uh, grew up here um, and, uh, you know, went to school, but then I went to the for college in the Bay Area and pretty much stayed up there. So um, gotcha. found my home up there. All right, yeah. So you've been a Californian basically uh, most yeah. of your life. Yeah. Almost all yeah. your life, that's great. Uh, and then um, for business school, I went to, um, uh, I was part of the, the joint program between Columbia and uh, Brewer Haas, Berkeley's business school. So I was able to spend a lot of time in New York. That's yeah. kind of when yeah. I spent a lot of time on the East Coast. No, that makes sense. Well, just curious, honey, growing up, um, you know, uh, what were some of the things that you were interested in? Were that you were excited about? Were you a gamer? Uh, were you? Did you read no. a lot? Uh, didn't didn't play any video games at all. Um, my dad, you know, uh, went, I went to like an arcade and dropped like twenty bucks in like a half hour, and he said, "You're horrible at this, and you're never going to play this again." Um, <laughs> the ROI doesn't pencil out, son. That's no, it. <laughs> no. It also the thing is like I I grew up in a generation. I'm kind of skewed because of like you know the gaming esports world that we're in today um you know we grew up at a time where like at least all my friends you know playing video games wasn't cool like sports was cool and that's all we did oh, okay. so, nice, so nice. for me sports from five seven years of age is all i really cared about and i, I grew nice. up i was a bit bit lucky in that you know I, you know i grew up at a time with cream and magic so the 80s showtime lakers and you know, the Raiders were good at different periods and, and so got the benefit of watching really good team Dodgers, you know, 88 World Series in the 80s. So, oh, sure. um, yeah. so my earliest memories of sports were my team's doing really well. Nice. Um, and, and then 
And so it just, it was always uh, something that was kind of, you know, I enjoyed with playing you. and, yeah. and like a lot of people, I was very nerdy about like the debates around sports, which sure. I think helped me quite act strong academically for, for nice. because I didn't enjoy reading much, but I, um, I liked reading a lot about sports. So. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And so when you played, what, uh, what sports were you attracted to? Uh, basketball, football, baseball, there's kind of the three sports. I liked them all wow. for different reasons. Um, still do, uh, for different reasons, but probably football I love the most, but I probably okay. was best at basketball. Um, and, and so, you know, it's that, those were the three sports I like, I just kind of really focused on. Gotcha. Well, so now, uh, being origin, um, they, uh, Southern California, but then spending time in, in the Bay Area. Well, you mentioned the Raiders. Are they your team? Yeah. So my sports fandom is, has changed a lot over the years. Um, I, it was, it's been very fortunate. So like I grew up with the Raiders. So I just love the uniform. My childhood friend, for some reason, just loved the Cowboys. Um, okay. And so we get in horrible fights between like, you know, which team was better. And we just realized one day, okay, you'll like my team and I'll like your team. And then the Cowboys, when I got to Berkeley, um, they actually uh, picked Troy Aikman, who was a UCLA guy. And I okay. thought growing up, I was going to go to UCLA. I wound up going to Berkeley instead for undergrad. But like, it was very easy for me to be a Cowboy fan. That's and right. then fortunately, the Rams, which I absolutely could not stand. So I never liked any of the Anaheim teams. Um, actually actively cheered against them. So I didn't like the Rams. I didn't like the Angels. Um, maybe because I was in Orange County. Um, I just, <laughs> I liked LA, so LA to me seems like gotcha. the place to be. Um, okay. But the Rams, um, you know, they were in the, when they were in St. Louis, I started cheering for them because I loved Kurt oh. Warner's story. I okay. mean, I don't know if you know about his story. He was literally out of football, um, I think, like in Europe, and then he came back, and then he had this great, great run of greatness. Um, and I, that was, you know, a great time to watch. So, so St. Louis Cardinals fan, for, or sorry, St. Louis Rams fan. And then when the Rams came back to LA, they picked Jared Goff, a Berkeley quarterback. So, okay. so a lot of it is like kind of where the Cal roots are. Right? And so, gotcha. you know, yeah, I'm a, like sense. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Bay Area guy. So you can imagine like my politics very much lie with that. So that's some <laughs> of the issues that I have with uh, uh, some of the ownership and some of the teams that are yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, uh, my, as you know, I'm a European soccer fan and yep. my all time favorite team is of course the German national team. And so when I watch the other leagues, my alliances always shift based on what German players are there. Yep. <laughs> so what? for a while I liked Chelsea, then I didn't like them, you know, after uh, Mikhail Bollock was there for a time and then Andre Schurla, then I didn't like them so much, but now they've got Timo Werner and Kai Hevitz. So it's back again. So yeah. let's see. <laughs> yeah. And but see, I mean, your experience, my experience with like fans, like it's hard to not to separate yourself out. Otherwise, what are you cheering for? You're cheering for a logo, right? So the right. people that are involved, it's very easy to say, oh, it can't be political or it can't be this or that, but like, how is it not? I mean, like exactly. it's localized. Yeah. It's, um, there's a lot of things that are quite compelling about sports for me in terms of how people can interact through that discussion of sports. Yeah, um, no, hundred percent. It, it's, it's, it's an emotional bond yeah. and that's gotta be based on who we are as our own personalities and also our politics that has yeah. to feed into it. Uh, I mean, I, 
the only time I really pay attention to to basketball or or, or baseball is when our team is doing well. Yeah. And uh, you know we had that good fortune in this last year, um, but the city's a buzz about it. And of course, my emotional bond is that I've been living in LA for twenty years, so yeah. that seems appropriate. But uh, you know, I don't follow it with the same level of depth that that you do. But uh, again, it comes back to it. Just there has to be an emotional bond for it to to work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. speaking of the emotional bond, I think one thing about sport it, it does. Um, I was a history major at Berkeley, so like. Um, the history of sport is very like kind of compelling to me. And, you know, um, when I came to you know, my father, he, his sport was cricket and soccer, right? So he was a very much <laughs> of a sports person, but he could not relate to these American sports. And then when my son was young, all his friends wanted to play soccer, which again, so it's really interesting. That, like, you know, it's not a sport I follow that much. And, and so, but my son played. So I, as a father, had to kind of be more, try to be more active. And then as a lot of sons do, they, they want to replicate what their dad does. And so they just started like watching a lot more of the, um, you know, the sports I follow. And he realized, Hey, I can go, go to a game and go watch, you know, go to the, the local pizza place to watch a game on a Sunday. If I start watching the sport with my dad. So it's, it's really, nice. um, you know, quite like the generationally like kind of keeping um, families connected, I think is pretty powerful too. Oh, I completely agree. No, there's so many great stories about that. You brought up history, um, 100%. Um, and so was that a driver of your wanting to study history at uh, at Berkeley? Uh, history no, uh, I, um, the, not at all. Um, you know, I went to I went to uh, Cal, like most, a lot of people who have no clue about what they want to do. They just know that they got to get into a good school. And, um, you know, it has zero kind of interest or probably not much ability on the sciences side anyways. So like being a doctor wasn't in the cards. So then just by default, it was law school. Um, and so if you're gonna be a lawyer, then it's political science or history. And, and so I'll just, just kind of flip the coin into big history. <laughs> um, but kind of what was really interesting was like my, you know, my parents weren't all that keen about sending me up to Berkeley, but Berkeley is one of the few UCs that actually have an undergraduate program. So me being the smart guy that I was, I told my parents, I'm going to apply to Haas undergrad. Um, yeah, nice. Not knowing that you actually, that's impossible to get into. So sure enough, I, I go there as the history major and you have to take a number of courses to kind of even bother applying. And, you know, I, I didn't get A's in those classes, so I wasn't going to get in. And so then I, I defaulted into that history major, which, which was, uh, I think all the things I've fallen into have been very fortunate. I've been lucky, but uh, there was no planning around history, but it turned out to be a field. And obviously Berkeley is one of the best history programs in the country. So yeah. um, I was quite fortunate to get like, you know, to really good education in that. And, and that's uh, awesome. I was just able yeah. to focus on the things that I found interesting in history. No, that's perfect. Well, and you, you talked about how after about uh, six years or so, uh, you were in B school, the joint yeah. program with, with Haas and, and Columbia Business School. Um, just out of curiosity, the, that six years in between, um, where were you working? Uh, it was actually like more like um, six. Uh, yeah, yeah, eight years, eight years. So, um, okay. uh, I, so I was in investment banking. I was in a couple of different startups right. um, in a kind of biz dev strategy roles. Um, I got into the Columbia Berkeley program was kind of one of the younger people in that program uh, because I was able to say, hey, I was part of a founding team and I'm not taking two years off to go to get an MBA. 
which was great because I was far less accomplished than everybody else in that program. And (laughs) I got to learn a lot from people who are far, you know, who were further along in their careers than myself. And um, from that, uh, I had the opportunity to go out to Dubai um, after I got done. So I I, I was in Dubai from uh, 2007 to 2015 which was um, a great time, Um, you know, not unlike to where we are today. Like when we got there, like the streets were lined with gold and, you know, a lot of capital was available and we were working on quite a few deals. Um, uh, So, so much so that we didn't have time to set up a fund. So we were doing all our deals on a case by case basis. And then, um, then the markets crashed and you had the global <laughs> real estate market and Dubai certainly was more affected than a lot of places uh, as it relates to the real estate side of things. And so we were able to, we were quite fortunate that we didn't set up a fund because we actually had a lot of autonomy when everyone else was getting kind of wiped out. True. Um, yeah. So again, kind of the second area where I kind of fell into education is the, the firm really focused on what we consider social infrastructure sectors. So education, health, security, defense, um, all areas that I think are fundamental human rights. Um, and so kind of just through my, all the time we spend on work, you wind up start doing and gravitating towards things you care about, especially yeah, if, you're, sure. if you have opportunities to kind of be like in transactions so you can focus on the transactions you care about. So um, the Middle East and in and, and Asia are two of the largest private education markets in the world. Right. So, um, you know, I know most of the large school groups in, in the, 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 it's really the Gulf countries. So uh, um, most of them are kind of based in the UAE. So I know a lot of those um, quite personally. And then um, on the higher ed side, the Gulf countries are the only place where they actually pay for the bachelor's degree. So I think, mm. you know, the last time we talked, I, you know, there's 300,000 Chinese nationals in the US. There's uh, 150,000 Indians and there's 100,000 Saudis, the difference is 100,000 Saudis are all mostly paid by the government. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a huge arbitrage opportunity around creating an, an online offering of 15,000, 20,000, not the $40,000 that international students have to pay. Um, and so that was kind of the, the thesis that I started looking at. Um, and I've spent pretty much the last 10 years looking at was um, education offers a lot of opportunities kind of on, on the capital side. So, you know, you can create scholarship money, you can create, there's a real estate component to education um, and there's a technology component to education, right? So across all the areas of the capital stack, you can um, create business models um, that make sense around arbitrage, around capital, human capital uh, and markets. So uh, and the UAE is kind of quite well placed to be a center of that. So that's kind of right. what I've done for kind of most of my last, you know, 10 years other than this startup that I founded. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely get into to that. I'm just curious, like um, when you were making a shift to Dubai, had you targeted uh, the Middle East or the uh, Gulf states as a geographic uh, um, I, I was, was it more opportunistic? And- no, I mean, I was kind of ready to look at international opportunities and um, I had some relationships out there. And so uh, uh, just through family and friends, um, it was like I said, you know, in, 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 in from 2005 to 2007, there were a lot of people going out 
um, yeah, uh, especially right. South yeah. Asians who were here from some of the best schools and like worked at Goldman and stuff like that. They were getting like ridiculous offers to like run a group. So I always tell people, anyone who's looking kind of an international experience, I think it's the best thing in the world because the kind of responsibilities you get to have, if you come from kind of like good backgrounds, um, you know, I know people who worked on the MTV Arabia deal. Like right out of right out of B school, right? Like you never get that opportunity. And that person went on to like heading up MTV Europe because nice. they they got poached by a family in 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 Saudi and they won the deal. And so MTV said, "Hey, this is a great person. Let's bring him on." And so you you can jump ten plus years in your career. I mean, I didn't have uh, a private equity background uh, prior to going out there, and and so. Um, that was my kind of reason to go out was I knew that like it would be much harder to break into that world. Um, and, and I certainly wasn't going to break in as kind of a partner, a founding partner. So um, yeah, that, was, that was that was kind of the, the thinking. It was very it's interesting. Yeah, no, and it obviously worked out exceptionally well. Um, uh, you know, that was around the time that I was doing a fair amount of fundraising, and so uh, for my first fund, and uh, so I spent some time there. And um, but my relationships there weren't as deep as they were in Southeast Asia, no. and so eventually, I my capital was was Southeast Asia based. Um, but I remember talking with some other fund managers who were raising money, and they talked about how having um, uh, Gulf capital is is like some of the best because they're so relaxed. Like it's it's hard to get into their their network, but once you're in, it's like you remember the family. Yeah, he told me like it, it was a Korean fund actually, and he talked about how you know they were about to close, and so they were sending them analysis of the the dirham to the won and the exchange rate, and the, the guys at uh, Dubai were like, we just don't care, pick a number. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we'll yeah. send you extra if it's more you just send it back <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 about relationship and then again it's a it's a different kind of time horizon so right yeah absolutely that's that's definitely the case i think with a lot of places i mean but to your point about different markets um as we talked about you know my family's originally from india pakistan i have some pretty significant family relationships in both those areas but i tell people all the time obviously india is a really hard market hot market in education i would never do any business in india despite my family relationships, some like kind of professional relationships, unless there was a Hani Sayed who was out there who had 10 years of transactional experience on the ground as I have had in the UAE. So, yeah. um, you know, anyone can do desktop research, but you actually, um, it's, the, it's the actual experience on the ground that forms those relationships and gives you the insights into those markets. So, you know, mine is in, is in the UAE and the GCC. It's not in Europe, although I have a lot of relationships there. I have there are people I can, kind of work with there and there are places I can work with in China, India and others, but like where I'm an expert is really just the Gulf and, and really primarily the UAE. So that's kind of yeah, like, you know, I think people yeah. need to be very clear about that when they think that, Oh, I know so-and-so big company in a market. It's like, what depth uh, do you know them at? And, and kind of how are, how are they going to help you? And yeah, I think those yeah, are the questions absolutely. that unless you have, unless you don't have that experience, you're not going to be able to ask those questions. Yeah. And you mentioned how, um, you know, ed tech or education were, was one of the bigger segments, of yep. the hotter markets at the time in that region. Um, was there anything else? Like, well, I mean, was there, you know, just something personal motivating, personally motivating you to be attracted to that? Uh, no, it was just a good asset class. And, and just okay. like in the same way healthcare was, um, 
you know, I have a lot of relationships uh, in health uh, as well. Um, and so we were looking at those kind of like, I mean, Cleveland Clinic was set up in Abu Dhabi. It's a $5 billion right. project, or, or that's, I think, maybe possibly more. Um, so just imagine the kind of products and services could be sold into that big infrastructure. So that was yeah. always this yeah. basic thesis around, like I said, health, security, and education. There's just great opportunities, and, you know, they'll continue to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, and interesting when you visit the Cleveland Clinic in in Cleveland, there the Intercontinental Hotel is like right there in the middle of campus, <laughs> which is I'm sure um, mostly for patients. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They like Absolutely. they like the Intercon for sure. I mean, you know, the, we yeah. talked. About, I think we talked about this. The one in the 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 Beverly Hills uh, Intercon is is quite the um, the the meeting ground for a lot of the, a lot of the folks from the region. <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so uh, we spent focused a lot of time in education space, developed a strong expertise in it. Um, share with us about um, the move back to the U.S. because it uh, it feels like it predates your launch of Athleta Ed. Oh, for sure. For sure. You're probably thinking about Athleta Ed for some time. Uh, no, I was actually, um, you know, so we have, I've, I've, you know, I had an advisory firm that I set up uh, to do investments and, you um, mm-hmm. The plan was to come back to, to do the come back to the U.S. Um, I, you know, my older son was born there. My daughter was born there. Um, but when my older son was ready to go to school at four years of age, yeah. you have to you, you have to decide as an expat. Like my father had to decide where you can raise your kids. Um, yeah. And and so you know my you know it's my wife and I really didn't have family. Um, her, she had a lot more family than I did, but I didn't have any family here growing up, and I wanted our kids to grow up around cousins and and grandparents. Um, so we came back uh, for purely personal reasons, um, gotcha. and and then, um, but with the intention of, uh, I was kind of ready to come back anyways to kind of leverage uh, the relationships I had from the region to do a cross border um, fund uh, or venture platform uh, to. Kind of access deal flow from the region that I can then commercialize in international markets. So that was basically the thesis of what I was going to do. Um, did some advisory work with a few different companies while I came back. Um, looked to invest in those companies as well. While and so that's what I did from kind of right off the plane from sixteen till. 1718. Um, and then one of the projects was to do an executive MBA in sports. Um, Kobe Bryant retires. Two weeks later, he starts up his own fund. LeBron James makes more money in beats than he does in his Miami Heat contract. Um, everyone knows Peyton Manning's and buy a team. The Golden State Warriors are a Silicon Valley venture club. Um, all of the stuff I knew about venture was already happening in sports. And, you know, right. as being very much of a Silicon Valley guy, you know, we talked about this last time was that no one in the Valley talks about AUM, right? They talk about their unique, I'm talking about GPs of funds. They talk about their deal flow. They talk about their, you know, world-class team that has access to deal flow that no one else has. And I immediately knew that athletes and, and, and sports uh, leaders would have this access that, you know, others would not have and so that was the initial thesis and then then there were people like me who was hearing about the nfl doing a venture platform and the 49ers having an internal vc team and 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 like how do i get that job <laughs> and and <laughs> so so the initial thinking was to create an executive mba in sports um, what i went through at at berkeley and columbia 
um, uh, you know, like I was saying, like a lot of life, and I think this is true for a lot of people that, you know, they're not all that planned um, or things just kind of happen to them and they're able to uh, just capture those opportunities. So on the Berkeley side, uh, the person who negotiated that partnership is my co-founder. And, oh, um, right. nice. and, and so he, um, his son was uh, poached to run a company out of India. Um, and so, you know, family from Pittsburgh originally, both husband and wife raised their kids in, in the Bay Area. And now oldest son is running a company out of India, um, a healthcare related company. So while I was in Dubai way, you know, several years after graduation from the program, Andy would fly out with his wife to go see his son and family. And this would be like a great vacation. Obviously you oh, teach a class yeah. in India or whatever else you would do, but she'd stop off in Dubai and we'd hang out and, you know, you, nice. that's what you do in, in the, in the Gulf. You just entertain people and you're happy to do it in nice hotels and nice places to sit. And so we became friends. Um, so naturally when I thought about coming back and doing this, one of the, uh, the idea was to have uh, Athleta Ed be a, project within this platform. So a couple of advisory opportunities I had, um, investments in those types of companies. And, and so that's what you do with a fund. Um, and this was a company I was incubating out of uh, this platform. And so I went to Andy and I said, hey, what do you think? And, and I actually didn't even know this at this time, but he went to Princeton on a football scholarship. Um, okay. And so was one of the first in his family to ever get educated. He's only had one job his entire career, 40 years as a professor at Haas, 18 of those years as associate dean. Um, and so he said, I'm in. Wow, amazing. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a young enough man. I've, I've watched all my former students or many of my former students start up companies. I'm in a position now to do it. I want to join you. And, and so that kind of changed things quite a bit. And when he got excited about this and I started talking to others, um, you know, they were very excited about it. So we spent about six months um, thinking about the model um, and kind of where that, that model would sit. Uh, and I always tell people, again, it's better to be lucky than smart or good. <laughs> Berkeley was changing out their athletic director and they were changing out the business school dean in 2018. So we couldn't do anything with them. <coughs> uh, and we went down to UCLA, um, kind of the number two person at Anderson School of Management is a close friend of Andy's. And they welcomed us with open arms. And one of the first things we realized, even in our conversation with Berkeley, was um, there was a far greater opportunity at the undergraduate level than the executive level. Hmm. Um, so the big aha moment was, and this is kind of going back to my education side, and then back to my own personal experience at Berkeley, which was, and I told this to Andy, I said, you know, when you were the associate dean, you didn't give a damn that Hani Said couldn't get into Haas or Hani Said couldn't take a single course. Hani Said was the dummy for not being able to take get into Haas, right? And if I didn't get into yeah. Haas, then I would not be able to take a course, yeah. any course, because yeah. they're all impacted. And and so it became a very personal thing for me. Like, that's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. not right. Yeah. And it's not yeah. right that at, at a school like Berkeley, or at a school like Warden, or at a school like Michigan, or at a school like Texas, or at SC or Notre Dame, you can't, it's very hard. And maybe the private school is a little bit easier. Um, or less impacted. And I'm not sure exactly how easy it is for a UPenn student to take a course at Wharton, but I know at Berkeley, it's, it's again, yeah. maybe it's different today. Yeah, um, you can, you're allowed to, but um, if you want to get in, you're better off applying when you first start out. Being there and then trying to transfer in is a much bigger hurdle. 
Yeah. So, but then that bigger hurdle means presumably that the, the entrepreneurship class that everyone wants to take is probably pretty impacted. It might not be so easy uh, for an English major to take that course. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, but it, it like, but like I said, at, at Berkeley, certainly when I was there, you're not taking anything um, uh, uh, because it's so impacted. And and so that's part of kind of the realization was that at large state schools, particularly elite academic institutions uh, on the public side, it's very difficult. Um, and that's where the idea of kind of what we're solving for is access. Um, uh, and, and what I mean by that, that only 11 of the top 20 ranked business schools have undergraduate programs. Um, right. and, and, and the ones that don't like Harvard, Stanford, uh, UCLA, which is our foundational partner, um, some you know most have like an entrepreneurship minor but even mm. those are impacted and so yeah, there's, exactly. there's very little opportunities and it's very kind of counterintuitive at some of these best schools it's really hard to take relevant education right and and, yeah. this, and so um that was the thesis and again me being kind of on the education side i knew that if we focused in on sports and kind of a very unique curriculum offering it wouldn't be met with as much um kind of uh, backlash or kind of hesitance yeah, and, and sure, sure enough point. it was the case yeah. so that, that's how you know what we've been doing for the kind of last two years is creating um, a curriculum model which is effectively a, um, a courseware that we license to academic partners who then deliver the course for credit through their own professors so um, we're describing it as a digital textbook um, Nice. All the, and what we're doing, we're preparing top academic faculty with sports industry leaders uh, nice. to create these courses. No, that's great. And you mentioned UCLA as a foundational partner. So yep. you've had uh, done some classes there already. Yep. Uh, three yep. cohorts now at UCLA. So now we're oh, scaling up. We're ready to scale up, actually. Um, and up until now, as I was saying earlier, it was at Anderson. So it was the business school at UCLA, but now we're having conversations with other schools and departments at UCLA and other universities to create the statistics through the lens of sports or to create mm. the civil rights through the lens of sports or to create um, you know, leadership in a psychology course through the lens of sports. So we take core undergraduate courses and add a sports lens to it. Um, this is all at the undergraduate level, but then we're also in conversation now to create exec ed type courses, professional right. studies courses, what we're describing them as. And that's going to be a certificate offering um, directly with uh, sports leaders. So, um, you know, we're in conversation with a number of pro teams for that. That's great. So um, the undergrad curriculum won't be just business oriented. No, be, no. Yeah. So. So this is kind of like, you know, the journey of a startup is that um, that certainly wasn't the plan at the beginning. But for example, the statistics course is is going to be our most successful course. Uh, you know, to that's the course that is a University of California requirement. So all the UCs, you have to take a quant requirement. Um, and so people like me who didn't test out of calculus at our high school, we got stuck having to take a year of calculus at Berkeley and that was a miserable experience, um, yeah. uh, 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 full of a lot of pressure and stress. And, and right. so to take a course that's, um, that, could, that could meet that requirement, um, I, th I think will be quite popular. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, gosh, uh, 
it just feels like the appeal of this is going to be for students um, of all backgrounds who have a love of sports, which is such a wide range of them. Yeah, I mean, so first off, you know, we talked about this last time was that, you know, 30% of the world are rabid sports fans, 70% are passive sports fans. Um, so it's a, it's not, a, it's not a niche. And so those of us that are rabid sports fans, we've been told often that, you know, it's a big waste of time and, and this and that. So we kind of are sheepish about our obsession, <clears throat> but it's actually, it's not a, it's, it's not a small niche. Like I like music, I like fashion, you know, but like, it's, it's not close to in terms of the kind of mind share that sports has in our world. Um, so that was kind of another big aha moment for us was that like, wow, like sports is really, really big. And if, and if you use that as a lever for education, it's quite compelling. But I was trying to make the point that the fact that we have sports content is, is really irrelevant. It's really no different than if we use, you know, Nike's balance sheet or if we used Apple's balance sheet. So right. we are, um, but it's not irrelevant for the people who will learn better because yeah. of that more yeah. content. But like, um, you know, it's not a gratuitous addition of sports. I mean, we, um, I always give the example of the Kaepernick issue, um, regardless of sure. what side of political aisle you're on, you don't actually have to have any interest in sports um, to exactly. be in, in, like to have a view on that. And right. specifically that case will not be in our ethics course. It will be actually in our capital markets course. Um, mm. And you'll show Nike's stock value going up or down based right. on, on right, kind right. of the reaction. And, and, and so, yes, the founders have a particular view on that, on that yeah, question. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's the beauty of education. I don't have to like, you know, there's a, there's a debate. There's kind of a, a way of looking at fact. And, you know, people can still um, argue with fact-based kind of arguments and still come to different conclusions. That's fine. Um, but I think having these types of very engaging topics, the same thing with COVID, you know, um, I, my, my wife who doesn't really follow sports, um, she's a great benchmark for me because like we take the issue of college sports with COVID. It's a really fascinating issue. Like, you know, yeah. universities are not on campus yet. The teams are playing. Like, how does that make sense to the casual yeah. fan? Right. But if you thought that there are certain number of universities that their whole budgets are heavily impacted by playing football now, and then you, in the context of, you know, the average 20 year old is not going to, it's not going to be fatal for them. Um, if they get COVID, then it becomes a really interesting debate, but exactly. it's, 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 you know, how much are we talking about the travel industry being affected by COVID? Right. It right. is. How much are we talking about retail F and B we're not, from you know yesterday was black friday how much people are talking about that right but sports you know if ohio state plays six games instead of eight games should they be able to play in the in, you know this is the debate on on a yeah, yeah. large scale yeah. so well uh look i, I it's interesting that there are those people who kind of uh, look down upon it or see it as a waste of time because um, I've never felt that way at all. And, uh, you know, I used to call myself a very proud geek. Um, and uh, it's the way it brings the world together, the way um, there's, there's connection there. You could be completely different socioeconomic status, have really no other overlap except for one thing. You're both wearing a Dodgers shirt. And that that says something 
that's meaningful like there's a, a point of connection there and i can't tell you i mean I, I i could go on and on about number of times i've connected with people who seemed uh, completely like like impenetrable but you bring up something about uh, sports and suddenly they they melt um yep. you bring up you know if you know some of the stats of the like my um there's a fair amount of uh there's a large african community in the dc area mm. my son was a patient at the nih and this thing is like a fortress to get into and we were supposed to have these photo id cards um and i had left mine and mm. i just really wanted to get in and see my son and i i just took a gamble i asked the security team there where are you guys from they said ghana and I'm like, gosh, that was so painful back in 2010 when Osamoa Gion, uh, you know, his shot was blocked by Luis Suarez. And then he stepped up to take the penalty and he missed. And then Uruguay ended up going to the semifinals and that was Ghana's spot. And they're like, dude, just go. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't be a bad guy and know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And the yeah. thing is, sports education and kind of trade uh, are all platforms to bring people together right Absolutely. and and it's funny how you know, we talk about like kind of my own personal journey was it's really interesting i just kind of fell on these areas i kind of independently had some interest in it. and then my dad's industry which was food um so he was in the food service industry and and, and so all these areas become, become very powerful to me like and you know um as a as a way of bringing people together and of course they also serve to keep people apart but i think the power of them bringing together you know like you talk about like, you know someone wearing a dodgers jersey or whatever um it forces people at a bar to talk and you yes. know and and that's very powerful so i don't think there are a lot of things like that um, and exactly. the last thing i would say is like um you know i was mentioning earlier that i'm not a a big fan of of gaming um, for all the things that like I think I have a very typical view of like all the things that are great about sports doesn't happen in gaming. But if you saw that like you know Microsoft commercial with the um, um, the you know the 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 the, 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 the one child that was disabled and he was the hero, right? He was yeah. the hero who was the best yeah. gamer, um, and that's really powerful. Right, like yes, that's actually absolutely. like, and then when you see those kind of um, and and I'd say the, um, the, the you know the uh, the founder of Activision Blizzard, uh, Michigan grad. So I was at a conference where he was there, and he's like, you know, a short, uh, a little bit overweight guy, and he says, and the MC was a former Michigan player, six foot four, you know, super athlete, and he says, you know, get up, stand up, and he's like, you know why is it that only someone look like him? He's like, maybe there's a hundred thousand people in the world who have, who look like him. There's probably a billion people who look like me at least. <laughs> and he's a, why is it that only someone like him can feel what it feels like mm -hmm. to score a touchdown in the big house, Michigan's stadium. He's yeah. like, that's what gaming does. It allows all of us get to feel like him. That's, that's also like a quite a compelling argument yeah. to, to make. Yeah. And, and the last thing I would say about, gaming because again this is kind of my own, my own journey was that um someone was telling me about like you know the one thing about kids who are very active as gamers they don't see race and culture in the way that we did and this is like the first generation kids who are like seven years old and old and uh, we're 14 years and younger you know some person on the other side of the world who has a funny name there's no longer a funny name 
right? Yes, that's just, yes. and that's, it's really, really interesting. So I think these things aren't either good or bad. It's how do you kind of grow them out? And um, that's really like, I, I think that's a really powerful thing that like, that's the first time, um, and, you know, because even in sports, you know, Asim or Hani have to be good at that sport and then they exactly. get accepted and then their, their right. name is no longer funny, you know, yeah. like, um, that's right. but the, the default is it's not funny. And I think that's right. really, really powerful. No, I completely agree with you. And it's interesting how the money is really starting to rise in, in gaming and e-game, e-sports. Um, uh, Ohio State University um, is actually funding a gaming yep. team, an e-sports team. Yep. And they're putting as much effort in, into it as they would. I mean, the resources haven't matched yet, but it's like in terms of initiative, same as their football team. It's like they anticipate it to become that, that scope, that level. And, uh, and, and to, to your point, because then again, it goes back to like the business side of sport, because right. is it a, is it a college sport? Can they get paid? Like, so like the biggest issue with, with, um, uh, so at UCLA, uh, e, the esports the e team is under club sports, not under the, uh, right. not under the athletic department at a number of schools that's under the athletic department. There are a number of startups that are going on trying to create their own equivalent to the NCAA because the NCAA right. can't govern esports because exactly. these guys get paid. And then the other thing is, is there a bunch of esports uh, females that are doing really, really well? Yes. Um, and yeah. so they can make as much money as the male athletes. So yeah. it's, um, yeah. uh, it's really, really fascinating. It's, yeah, it's raising a lot of interesting questions, no doubt. Well, Hani, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much yeah. for no, uh, appreciate your shares, it. for being candid. And we've had a lot of great topics that we've discussed here, uh, just global topics beyond just uh, your experience and your background. Yeah, um, thank you. Anyone's uh, interested, uh, um, you can share my information with them. Uh, I'd love to talk to people who are kind of, kind of very interested in our mission and, and who can be helpful on our journey. So always happy yeah, to talk to people. Sure. We'll do this. Uh, yeah, we'll do. We'll share all your details so they'll be able to find you. Awesome. And um, yeah, wish you all the best, honey. Thanks so much again.